I, that amazes me, blesses me, that the Holy Spirit is doing a work and knows who needs what. Um, when we talk about the cross, we're talking about something that hits very close to the core of who we are as believers. Um, when we talk about the cross in relation to his death, most of us nod and say amen. We see the cross as the place of his sacrifice. He died for me. He died as me. He died for my sins. When you start to take people to the cross as the place for their death, then you really get into waters where we have to think about our own life. We then are forced to think about our own mortality. We're forced to think about our own spirituality because it's no longer Jesus died on the cross. It's I have died on the cross. Some of the questions that I've fielded this week are from people who are in grace-finished work circles who have been well-versed in, for instance, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. How can I have been crucified with Christ and still need to hear a message about dying? And quite simply, the reason for that is because the New Testament is replete with the message of dying. It's the message that the early church kept presenting to the world is that Christ died and you get to meet him there. Come meet Jesus. Come meet Jesus in his death. Come meet Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Put your life into his life. Put your, make his death your death and then live it out. But if that's not a good enough answer, then theologically we could say, because what happened at Calvary is that Jesus died to sin. So when I come to Christ, I died to sin. Sin no longer dominates me. It no longer defines me. It doesn't mean I don't sin. It means that sin has no dominion over me because my death is in Christ and I have died to the effects of sin. I have died to the punishment of sin. Christ has taken my punishment for sin. But that doesn't mean that I don't have things to die to. Um, and I don't mean spiritually I need to die so that I'm more saved. Um, but I mean there are things that I've given the opportunity to. And this is why I said this last week and I want to kind of take off from where we landed that that plane last week. We land there in Luke 23 where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and his disciples are falling asleep. And Jesus says, hey, temptation's coming. Temptation's coming. And as we said, what is that temptation? Why, why does Jesus keep going back to that? They're not about to go out and be tempted to steal. They're not about to be tempted to cheat. So what is the temptation? And then we get to see it in vivid color when here come the soldiers and Peter pulls his sword and cuts off the ear. And Jesus says, permit this. This is what you were tempted to do. And this is what I was asking you to watch out for. This is what, this is what the cross is about. Is death to what might be more convenient. Death might, to what might be easily reactive. Jesus tried to teach it all the way to the cross. It is the Sermon on the Mount. To love, to turn the other cheek, to bear the mile two instead of one. None of it's what I want to do, but I'm dying to my natural inclination to win. My natural inclination to get back at you. My natural inclination to do what I want to do instead of what he might want me to do. 
That's what I mean by the cross teaches us to die. It teaches us that there are things that we are reactive with that come natural to us that seem what the thing that makes us human. And those are the things that oftentimes have to go down into the burial of Christ to say, that's not who I am any longer. And that process is continuing to happen in us as we live this out, as we work this out. Um, I want to title tonight, Die Like a Man. And I do this because I told you last week that we would take off here. If the cross teaches us how to die, then I want to take us into what it looks like to die like a man. And let me really deal with that title first because that's what people click on and then it, they need something else. My title's not a call to a masculine death because what in the world would that mean? We're kind of in a world where we're, we're having arguments about what is and is not masculine. And um, that's not what this title is. It's me trying to throw my voice into that fray. I don't know what a masculine death would look like, but what I mean is that it's a declaration that Jesus died as a man for all mankind. To die like a man is for God, the God, to become a man and die in the same manner that a man's going to die. You can insert woman, boy, girl. Mankind, humanity in general, his actions on the cross actually teach us what is important in dying. So when we say die like a man, what I want to focus on is that Jesus dies as a man, and as he dies, he shows us the way that death ought to go. Um, this is an impactful... You got, some of you guys know I, I like... I like history, and I really like colonial American history, founding fathers era. Um, the, gre- the, the second greatest body of letters in written American history was between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the last approximately 13 to 15, 18 years of their life. Um, there's a famous line in an Adams letter from... 1813, where he says to Jefferson, and this is actually the opening letter in this back and forth. I think they wrote 155 letters to each other in less than two decades. And the opening letter, Adam says to Jefferson, the two of us ought not to die until we have explained ourselves. A line that I think is clever, but full of the, the body of knowledge that that sort of founding generation had and the clashes politically that those two had had, their friendship sort of temporarily severed. And Adams is sort of throwing an olive branch out by saying, let me explain my side of the story and I want to hear your side of the story. The two of us ought not to die until we have explained ourselves. I like, it's clever, but it's also... Very, very valuable to understand that we have a role in dying that is more than just passing away from this place to the next place. We have a role not in just me explaining myself to you or you explaining yourself to me, but we have a role in dying as the people of God should die. And I know it seems like one more great responsibility you picked up in following Jesus, but 
welcome to the family. You did pick up one more great responsibility in following Jesus in that we value our lives in the way that we see that they're created by God and that we ought to protect it and that we ought to take care of it, but that we have a responsibility to someday realize we're going to lay this thing down so that we can pick up our eternal life and that that ought not be taken lightly, that that ought to be taken serious, that there is something to be done here. Um, it seems like a message that would, that would have been very obvious a couple hundred years ago when Christianity was about personal responsibility and it was about civic duty and it was about helping your neighbor and it was about building your communities. And slowly, over the last few generations, Christianity became a private faith. It became, I don't really have to have other people. It's me and Jesus got our own thing going. Um, church is a great thing, but I don't really need it. And then when the digital age exploded, it got even bigger to where I, I, don't, I don't have to go and be around a soul. I got my thing. And so now we're having to say these things out loud again, things that were almost natural to us that part of my Christianity is the responsibility I have to you and to you and to you and that I can't get past that and that I signed up for that. And uh, I, I, I think we're going to see a return to it because I think it's part of our DNA is we're part of the body. And so I think there'll be a pull back to that. But in the meantime, uh, it's understanding that we do have a responsibility in this. Now, what I want to do tonight is take a few of the moments on the cross and I don't want to take all seven. Jesus had seven statements on the cross. This is the famous seven sayings of Jesus. I don't want to do all seven. We've already done it. When we were in our John series and we got to the cross, we took one Tuesday night and we did the seven sayings of Jesus and we used Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and we worked through those seven statements and we talked about everything Jesus said at the cross and why it mattered. Well, that was a few years ago and I'm in a constant state of development and my own understanding of what the word says, as are you. Um, what I do want to take are three moments at Calvary where I think Jesus shows us how to die like a man. Jesus shows us what needs to be done in our death. And this is not a message of like, I got to practice getting these things right so that I can die properly. But I think it's, this is one of the amazing things that staggers me about Christianity. So we can talk about these incidents in the Bible that are, say, 2,000 years old. This little story of Jesus on a hill preaching and tearing bread and handing it out. And then that, that lesson becomes so important to my work day on a Thursday, 2,000 years later. Like, something will come up in your daily walk and you'll be like, that's exactly like that moment Jesus was in a boat and went across the sea with his disciples. The Bible staggers me in that way. And so it's, you can take a look at Jesus dying on Calvary and watch how he does it and realize that it's God dying for the first time. Think about that. God had never died. God dies for the first time because you only get one shot at it too. You know, you don't get to replay it, so you're going to die once. And so God becomes a man to die one time. And as he goes into death, he speaks from his heart, sort of a we ought not die till we've explained ourselves kind of moment. We ought to die having said what needs to be said, having done what needs to be done. And though we may not get that chance, because we may die abruptly, we may die suddenly, we may die... Unfortunately, 
But we will die. We will face our mortality one way or the other. And so we, I'm not acting like we're going to get a chance to play this out on our deathbed. But that's the beauty of the faith is we don't have to wait to play things out on our deathbed. We get to live them out because we are living from our deathbed in Christ. We've went on to our deathbed in Jesus and we're raising up in a newness of life. So we get to live out what Jesus lives on the cross. We don't have to wait until we're dying to do what Jesus does at Calvary, but don't let us die without doing what Jesus does at Calvary. I said that. That was long, but let me try it again. We don't have to wait until we're dying to do what Jesus does at Calvary, but don't wait until you're dying to do what Jesus does at Calvary. Okay? You don't have to wait because you get to live this out. So let me start with this one. Luke 20, oh, yes, right, sorry, Revelation 12, 11, then Luke. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. This is a phrase I just want you to take. That last line. They did not love their lives to the death. This is, this is one of those backdrop verses that I don't even want to stay on, but I just want you to have it. This is the, this is the war in heaven passage from Revelation. I was listening to a preacher this week expound on this chapter. I just want to say this and move on. I, I didn't intend to say this, but I, I want to get this out there. Um, I was actually out running and I was listening to a sermon and the preacher was using this text and he did a fine job with it. But it struck me that we don't, because so much of us, so many of us come from eschatology circles where it's all coming up, it's all out in the future, we never got to use revelation for good theology. And it struck me as I was listening, and the guy was doing a great breakdown of Revelation 12 as the place where war ceased to happen in the heavens because God kicked war out of the heavens. And now if you're at war, it's got, it's, it, you can't be in the realm of the heavenlies or you wouldn't be at war because there is no war in the heavens. And I thought, man, I needed to hear that 20 years ago, but I couldn't hear it 20 years ago. And do you know why? Because for me, Revelation 12 was out in the future which means there is war going on in heaven. And if there's war going on in heaven, there's probably war going on in me. And if there's war going on in me, there's probably war going on in the church. And let's be warriors for Jesus. And because my eschatology was so bad, I couldn't use Revelation for theology. And I think that is one of the great tragedies of, of the church is that because we frame stuff like this around futuristic events, we don't get to take any present possession of this. And so you got a scripture like they overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives to the death. We think that's up in the great tribulation somewhere. And we go, well, heck no, they didn't love their lives to the death. It was hell here, man. It's hell on earth during the great tribulation. Of course they don't love their lives to the death because they're not going to get the mark of the beast and bow down in front of the Antichrist. But then if this verse actually becomes a definition of how you cease war in your soul, and it's no longer out in the future during a great tribulation, but it's inside of you, then this becomes valuable for theology. I get to overcome whatever I have a, a, a burden with by the death of Christ and by not loving my own life, by letting my own life lay down with Christ. His death becomes my death, my death wrapped up in his death. I don't have to fight anymore. Can you see why? eschatology actually becomes a pretty big deal, particularly if you're just going to shut off portions of your Bible from ever learning anything because it hasn't yet happened anyhow. Now, I meant that to be a backdrop. It jammed up there near the front, so 
Um, let's leave it alone. Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do, and they divided his garments, and they cast lots. Here's our first moment. I'm going to give you three. I know Jesus says seven things. I'm only going to preach three of them, teach three of them, because I thought they were three salient points that you can live out. You don't have to wait till you die to do them. In fact, if you wait until the actual moment you die, you'll never get them done. So since you are in his death, you get to live these out now. And one of the very first things is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. So let's call that one number one. Hold on to nothing. Jesus at Calvary lets go of the one thing he can take with him into the grave. Absolute pain and vengeance at his killers. I'm wrongfully accused. I could beat up all of them. I'm going to come back and do exactly that. But what does he do? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He forgives. And, and I love this thought. Forgiveness is voluntary death to the right to be right, the right to be avenged, the right to be satisfied. You could go on and on and on and on about what forgiveness is actually giving up, but it's giving up your rights to be right and to get your way and to have your way and to be self-satisfied and to see people get what's coming to them. Jesus teaches us by saying, Father, forgive them, to leave nothing unresolved, hold nothing tightly, in his death, he lets go and forgives. And we have so clouded stuff like this by these silly. Let me give you the following is a silly theological argument that does nothing but muddy the waters. We say things like, now Jesus is not forgiving the whole world when he dies on the cross. With that. He's just forgiving his, his Roman and Jewish killers. And all that does is make forgiveness a limited event where... I don't even know why they bothered to put it in the Bible. I mean, he only forgave the people that killed him. Why do the rest of us need to know? And you know what? I'm on to something there. Because we've discovered mid-third century manuscripts without this verse. Like we got really old Greek manuscripts, and there it is in Luke 23. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And you get up into the middle of the third century, and they started leaving it out. Now how is it in there, and then not in there? Because it's offensive to think that you could just forgive people and them not ask for it. And so about 300 years, 250 years into the advent of the church, somebody gets the bright idea that we can't let people think they're forgiven because Jesus forgave them. you got to only be forgiven because you seek forgiveness, because you buy forgiveness, because you pay for forgiveness, because you earn forgiveness. We can't let... Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, become the theology of the church. And you know what? Somehow, thank God we got it snuck back in. <laughs> by, the, by the time we start to assemble the canon, it's pretty much in there in Luke. And thank God it is. But I think it did almost irreparable damage. We're talking 1,700 years ago, and we're still so damaged from having that dropped out of the text for a while. We're so damaged about forgiveness, particularly about Christ's forgiveness, that when people talk about Jesus, to me, this ought to be his tagline. Like the tagline of Jesus is, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. As far as I'm concerned, everything in Jesus, that's the fulcrum. Like everything he teaches just sort of tilts on that. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. To me, that's the apex of Christ's theology. Like what's the smartest thing Jesus ever said? My gosh, that's tough. But you can't do worse than Father forgive them, they know not what they do. 
What's the most loving thing Jesus ever said? Well, there's a good 20 or 30 things you could write down, but you can't do much better than, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I, I, I don't know that we have a better piece of theology in the ministry of Christ. But what does it really mean to me? What Jesus does in saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, is release His own right Remember what we told you last week. The great temptation for the disciples is, hey, there's a temptation running, coming around the corner. And here it comes. And they're holding swords. And they pull the sword and cut off Malchus's ear. And Jesus reaches down and puts the ear back on Malchus's head and heals him according to the book of Luke. And he says to Peter, permit even this. And I told you that what Jesus is doing is the hardest thing in the world. It's, it's Jesus having us bear the neck in front of the sword. It's, it's fighting and resisting the temptation to pull our own sword and fight back to stay alive, but instead he just bears the neck and says, the worst thing you can do to me is kill me. If the best thing you can do to me is kill me, he goes, that's okay. I know where my father is going to bring this victory. But even the temptation was strong for Jesus because remember he said, I have a whole host of angels that could come and carry me off the cross. So he's cognizant of the fact that there is a way I can fight back. And at Calvary, when his mouth opens and he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, he could have went the other way. Father, bring it on. Bring the fire. Bring those angels out of the heavens. That's how we're going to bring about the kingdom. Now, we know he doesn't, and we know why he doesn't, but the fact that he doesn't should stagger us. It should be the thing that as we're laying our lives down, Daily in Christ, we're reminded of that I don't have to always be right. I don't have to be righted. I can surrender my ability to be right. I can surrender my response. And I beg you, don't wait till you die to figure this out. Realize that you've already died in Christ and it's time to figure this out. Let go. As we said a few months ago, the things that, that about grasping a man's life consists more in the abundance of things that he possesses and that word possesses grasp a man's life consists more in the abundance of things he can hold on to we told you in that message the hand will come open when you die when you die and there's nothing you can hold on to any longer so we live in a perpetual state of realizing that the old us is crucified in christ so start to let go of the stuff this is part of casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. But it's bigger than just a mental ascent to, I'm going to let God take care of this. It's literally releasing the people in our lives from the things that they've done to us, from the things we think they owe us, and doing it because Jesus is showing you how to die like a man. Die the way mankind should die, released, so that by releasing what he has... He can release his spirit. The second one is John 19, 26, 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her, took her to his own home. That leads me to this second thought. Provide for those you love. And I use this idea that in Hebrew culture, the patriarch held the responsibility of speaking blessing into the people that they left behind. In other words, it was the old man's job to lay his hands on his sons 
and his grandsons. And I don't just mean write them a check. I mean he opened his mouth and he spoke into their lives. He spoke positive. He spoke blessing. He spoke their future. Now, part of this we've lost because this isn't our cultural way. We also fight death. I've said this to you probably a lot, but we fight death so hard that we don't really allow people to die with blessings coming out of their mouth because we try to, well, you're not going to die, you're not going to die, don't talk like that, and then they're gone, and we missed a chance to let them say into us what was in their spirit. And in the biblical world, that was encouraged. You get a really good glimpse of that in Genesis 49, Genesis 50, where Jacob's dying. He brings all of his sons in front of him, and he speaks into their lives. And I don't just mean he says, bless you. I mean, he just, he speaks. Like he says, this is, what, this is what God is saying. This is what God is going to do. Now, we don't really have that habit, but that doesn't matter. We still have the chance to speak into the lives of the people we care about. Provide for the ones that are yours and that you, they belong to you and you belong to them. Start now. Speak into your children and speak into your grandchildren. And, and to me, that last sentence is, the, is so valuable. Leave them more than money. I, I think we have this impression that the, the thing that is our greatest responsibility, this is a very successful Western world idea, by the way. The greatest responsibility that I have is to leave money for my kids or leave money for my grandkids or leave land or leave inheritance or leave a retirement fund. And hey, great. If you can leave a bunch, leave a bunch. It is not the greatest thing you have to leave behind because it'll all flee and pass away. In fact, it might be the greatest source of fighting that, of anything that you can leave behind to your kids and your grandkids is who's going to get what. What we can leave behind is the value of what we put into our kids, what we put into our grandkids, and not just our family, but the people that matter to us, the people that matter, that make a difference in who we are. So provide for those you love. Here's the third one. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The, the basic moment at Calvary to me where everything is over is without a doubt it is finished okay I did not use it as finished for the simple fact that it is finished to me has a spiritual statement that is being made teleo Greek teleo what is done will be done and will always be done um my death physically and your death physically is not in that sense a perfect tense death. Like, you're dead then, dead now, and shall always be dead does not apply to us in the spirit. Because in reality, we have a resurrection. Therefore, I didn't use it as finished. Um, besides, all I could really think to do with it in, my, in, in the natural realm is, Go ahead and get everything done you need to get done before you die. Work on that now. But to me, the one that really speaks is this moment where Jesus releases his spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Or this third one. Trust God with your soul. Could probably say trust God with your spirit as well because we, you can parse the difference in the spirit and the soul, I know. 
the soul, the emotion, the psyche, the spirit, the breath of God that is in us. Reality, you can trust him with both because neither of them remain behind after your physical body dies. But part of our death is to trust God with our soul to commit our spirit or our soul into Father's hands. Notice he doesn't say God into your hands I commit my spirit, but rather Father into your hands I commit my spirit. By the way, Jesus always refers to his Father as Father. Only in my God, my God, hast thou, why hast thou forsaken me? Do we ever get Jesus referring to the Father as anything other than Father? Commit your spirit into the Father's hands and acknowledge that you're a son or you're a daughter and that you are going into union with the eternal. This is fearless death. This is us facing who we are in Christ, facing the end of who we are in the natural realm, in the place that almost all of us say we're supposed to be, and that is Christians die a fearless death. We have nothing to fear. Jesus has faced death on our behalf. And yet I've watched people die in the faith and watched them be afraid of facing the end because I think in many ways we are not committing what comes next into the hands of the Father. And I don't think we have to wait till we die to do this, but to realize that our life is not ours now. That right now, my breath, the, every breath I take is in Him. That it's consumed with who He is. That I am in Him and He is in me. And that by releasing what I am, when the natural death comes, I'm simply stepping across from one place into the other. I honestly think that one of the reasons this was so impactful last week when we taught the cross teaches us how to die, the reason I think we got so much feedback was partly because I was consumed in the teaching with helping explain the death of somebody I loved. I had to do a funeral two days after that lesson. And so my whole study going in was consumed with losing someone you care for, that it happened to be, no coincidence, it was the spirit, because I knew where I was going days before we got there, and then we're going to do a funeral. And you go, these two things are coming together at the same time. So that was a work of the spirit. To try to get my mind into that place of releasing that, that natural man back into the earth, to release that spiritual man into the place where he or she can go home. But then watching and doing that funeral and watching someone who didn't wait to, to commit or trust God with his soul, but he trusted God with his soul through his Christian walk to the place that the funeral wasn't a funeral. His wife got up and talked and said, this isn't a funeral, this is a celebration because this was the life that he lived. This is the life that we live together. I know where he is. I know who he is with. I don't think we have to wait until we face the darkest tunnel of the last moments of our lives to step into that area where we release our soul to him. It's part of what we get to do now that we've entered into his death is completely trust our soul to him. I think if we could do that, we could face sickness. We could face adversity. We could face persecution. We could face problems. And you might say, well, the church is pretty good at that. But I disagree. I don't think the church is very good at it for the most part because we aren't allowing people to die. And therefore, they're freaked out about persecution and they're freaked out about stress and they're freaked out about problems and they're freaked out about sickness and disease because 
They think it's beneath their places God's children to ever have anything bad happen to them. And they think it's, if I walk in favor, none of that bad stuff's going to happen. And if, I, if I'm where I need to be with the Lord, then God will take all of those things away. And yet, tragedy happens to us all. The one thing that links you to every other human being on the earth is not your skin, it's not your education, it's not your money, it's not your country, it's not your culture, and it's not even your religion. You know what links you to everybody? Atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Christian, Jew. Every person on the face of the earth is going to suffer. Every one of them. Something. Some really horrifically. Some a little, but all of us all the way. And all the way to the end, at the end, we all end up dying. And so at the end, we all go through the same door. Like you're going to die. So the thing that links us as humanity is that we suffer. How we suffer is different person to person, place to place. It's even different season to season. It might not even be the same at 40 as it was at 20, as it was at 10, but the suffering is the same. The suffering, the fact that you suffer is the same. Committing that into his hand is the lifelong process. Is that no matter what I go through, it is in you. Let me show you how the New Testament lands this just a couple of times, and we'll land with them. I wanted to show you this in microcosm. Our three instances at the cross where Jesus teaches us to die are all wrapped up in Stephen's death. This is the first Christian martyr, by the way, in Acts. He spends all of this chapter giving what he has, taking care of his own, trying to win his brethren to Christ. So in a way, mother behold your son, son behold your mother. That's Stephen. I'm doing everything I can to provide for the people I'm leaving behind. And then as he dies, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Same words Jesus says on the cross commits himself over to God. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. That's, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In microcosm, that is death. Stephen does everything he can to provide for his own. He forgives those who kill him, and he commits his spirit back to God. He's living out in his death what Jesus had done at the cross only three and a half years prior to the stoning of Stephen. Remarkably, Jesus shows us how a man should die, and Stephen, the first Christian martyr, takes him up on it and says, okay, and that's the way I'll die too. And I think Paul tries to die the same way. 2 Timothy 4, 6, 7, 8, I'm ready. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I've offered myself to every person that I know. Everything that I have, I've poured it out so that they can have whatever is left of me. There's me providing for my own. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And there's a magnanimity about the death of Paul that is an open-hearted death that says, my time has arrived. It's not as concise and as tight as the death of Stephen there in Acts, but if you watch the body of Paul's work, you end up finding that he dies in much the same way that Jesus dies, laying down what he is. Now, this isn't take notes so that when you die, you get it right. This is you entered into his death when you accepted Christ, so you're already there. So start living out all of the things that Jesus shows us to do to die as mankind should die. Not as those who have no hope, not as those who, and I know this is the most offensive thing you can say to most of us in Christianity, but not as those 
who live their lives as if they have to win. Because when you come to follow Jesus, you give up the right to always win. It's part of dying. You lay down who you were, so you take up who he is. I challenge you to die like a man in that you watch how Jesus did it and step into that as you live this out. We have this sensational paradox in the faith. We are living sacrifices, two words that do not go together. Sacrifices do not live. When Paul said that, he knew it was ironic. He knew it was even oxymoronic, although he might not have known that word, but to live and to be a sacrifice. And yet we're doing that every day. We're living. We're living in Christ. And yet we are a sacrifice in that we have laid who we were down to pick up who we could be, who we are in Christ. Let's pray. And let's pray for Let's pray for these who we have, I, I, who we brought up at the beginning, but us also pray for those who are watching who come looking for this because it's just been powerful in my soul this last week. This is a message that these messages these last two weeks are some that there's some believers out on the hunt for. They need to be able to find them, and they're going through it. And Sometimes when you, when you get hit, people want to give you lofty. It's like you can live up to lofty. But the reality is, is sometimes that when you get hit, you need ministered to right there. Right where you're hit. And I think that's where the Holy Spirit does His work. Wherever, wherever we are. And so while you might want to go find a message on your identity in Christ when you're facing the end of it. Sometimes you need to go find out what it looks like to lay this down in him and pick up who he is. And that's, that's who I want to pray for. And I don't know who he or she is. I do know a couple of them because I've been hearing from them. But there's more. Father, I thank you. What a special time in the word. I thank you for this opportunity this week to encounter so many of your, your sons and daughters who have been impacted by this little series and this little set of messages on the cross. Something, is, something has resonated in those who are facing their own hell. They're facing the possibility of death. They're facing turmoil and problems and they need to hear that Jesus has walked into this in front of them and that he lays his hand out to hold their hand into this moment. And Father, we pray for them, some of whom we've encountered and many, many more who we haven't, but you're bringing them into the knowledge of your love. Teach us to live this out because we are living sacrifices. And show us what that means in Jesus' name. Amen.